and welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres, and I am here with Sarah Robertson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Dan. Who do we have on the show today? Today, we have Amherst College professor Monica Ringer, a professor of Middle Eastern history. Welcome, Monica. Thank you for having me. We are recording this the day after the U.S. soccer team in the World Cup played Iran. A lot was made of that. So I wanted to discuss what is happening in Iran today. And I felt like that was a really important conversation given not only the World Cup, but also what's going on politically in terms of the protest and Iranian history. So can you just start off with when did this most recent uprising begin? Who's protesting and what's happening right now in the cities of Iran? And what are their demands? All very good questions, and I, I'll, I'll try to address them all. So as probably most of you are aware, protests have been ongoing in Iran for about 10 weeks now. Now, it's not the first protests to hit Iran. Uh, there have been sporadic protests since 2009, particularly in recent years, 2017, 18, 19, that were also sustained for many weeks and that were widespread in Iran. Those protests, however, and the reason that the current protests seem so different than those is that those former protests tended to be about particular issues, tended to be about particular policies, particular situations, for example, bread prices, water mismanagement, or in 2009, election fraud. The spark of the current protests was the detention of a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman by the name of Massa Amini, who was arrested by security forces for failure to observe strict dress codes. But I think we have to see her tragic death as a spark and ask ourselves not just what the spark was, but what created the conditions for this incredibly dry ground in which a spark such as Massa's death would ignite these kinds of protests. And I have a, a long list of things mm. that, that create this kind of tinder. Long-standing cultural repression, particularly around gender issues and particularly towards women. Long-standing political repression. Long-standing economic mismanagement and corruption of the government. I think I would add to this, we're coming out of the COVID years in which a lot of Iranians experienced shortages and felt that the government mismanaged the COVID crisis. We're in a particular moment of inflation exacerbated with the Ukraine crisis. Iran's food price inflation is exceptionally high. And we're also in the broader context of the Raisi presidency. In 2021, Raisi was brought into effect a kind of harmonization of the regime insiders, concerted collective action to present a solid united front in the event of the death of the supreme leader, who is currently 83 years old and known for having suffered serious health issues. Mm. So the question there would be to ensure a smooth succession if and when the supreme leader were to die. What this all means is that there's incredible confluence of various kinds of pressure points on the Iranian public, mm -hmm. that the hardening of the arteries of the regime together with this particular spark was enough to ignite discontent. You said, uh, President Risi, can you talk a little bit about him? Who is he? You said he got elected recently. Can you tell us a little bit about his politics and how that's playing into these protests? 
Yeah, President Raisi was elected, if you like, to the presidency in 2021. And I say that with some amount of hesitancy because over time, elections in Iran have become less democratic in the sense that to be vetted to run for election, you have to be vetted by various kinds of committees. So it's not, it's not simply popular election. However, once candidates have been vetted, elections had been largely free and fair. Over time, however, particularly with the election to the second term of President Ahmadinejad in 2009 that sparked protests surrounding possible election fraud, there has been a growing sense that the president is, while not technically selected, at least has the green light of the Supreme Leader. So Raisi coming in in 2021 is largely seen as a decision to consolidate the regime after Rouhani's presidency. And in a sense, Rouhani's presidency, his job as president was to see if they could ease sanctions relief on Iran through pursuing a nuclear deal. And when that obviously was ratified by Iran, but when the Trump administration unilaterally pulled out of that deal, many of the hardliners who had opposed it in the first place then rallied around Raisi, who's come in now to ensure a smooth succession of the Supreme Leader. In this particular presidential election, fewer Iranians voted than, than ever in the past. Okay, wow. And so that's a sign that, that the, also the, the people are not behind a lot of what's happening at the elite level, that there's some disenchantment there. Right. It's a sign in a sense that the semi-democratic system that is the Islamic Republic of Iran is that the, the democratic side is becoming smaller at the expense of the non-democratic side right. and that the Iranian public appreciate this. Yeah. How has... U.S. policy towards Iran changed from the Trump administration to the Biden one, or has it changed very much at all? Well, I mean, the Biden administration is engaged with renegotiating the nuclear deal. And that's, in a sense, obviously, every negotiation is extremely complicated because there were people within the U.S. political system who did not want a nuclear deal with Iran. Once we had the deal and Trump pulled out of the deal, it's, it's harder to consolidate a unity around the deal a second time. And that's even more difficult for the Iranians who said, look, in good faith, we did agree to this deal. And America has exercised bad faith in leaving the deal. Trying to get everyone around the table to do this a second time when you guys pulled out and we didn't is particularly difficult, especially since it was the hardliners now consolidating around President Raisi who were so opposed to it. They were pushed into it by the Supreme Leader, but what are the advantages for them now to be willing to sign up for it again? Uh, we're talking with Monica Ringer, professor of Middle Eastern history at Amherst College. So we've been talking about the protests happening in Iran just a few days after the U.S. played Iran in the World Cup. And I want to go back to these protests about how it got started, what's happening on the ground. So, Professor, the motto for these recent protests seems to be women, life, freedom. Some women on YouTube and other social media channels have burnt their hijabs 
as uh, protesters surrounding them are chanting anti-government slogans. You mentioned earlier how the morality police killed a, a woman, and this was the spark of the protest, although you've explained underlying conditions. But let's talk about the role of women in organizing these uh, demonstrations today. How is that happening? How are women doing? And can you talk a little bit about their, their leadership in these protests? Thank you for that question. I, I should start off by saying I'm a historian. So I'm not a political scientist, I'm not an economist, and I see the protests very much in historical context. As you, as you noted, the slogan of the protests has come to be women, life, freedom. And I'd like to make a few points and sort of unpack this, particularly surrounding the place of women in the protests, and I would argue why gender is at the center of the protest. This is something that if you don't understand the history of Iran, may not be obvious or apparent at this point. So it's not only that there has been long-standing repression of women's rights of, and of freedoms, which has certainly been the case. But beyond that, gender is at the center of the Islamic Republic's underlying ideology. Its legitimacy rests on the central component of gender. So thinking about the Islamic Republic, representing it as, you know, both Islamic and a republic, these two sort of keywords. The promise contained in the word republic is that the government, the state would be populist. There was a promise of democracy, responsibility, accountability, all of this in opposition to the failure of the Pahlavi monarchy and all of these counts. So in other words, the 1979 revolution and the Islamic Republic that was the product of this revolution promised democracy in ways that they felt the, the Shah's regime had failed. But in the conception of the founding father of the Islamic Republic, and I'm speaking here, of course, of Ayatollah Khomeini and his supporters, the sort of Islamic revolutionaries, Islamic stood for social justice, for authenticity, for a modern Iran, but not an imitative Western-style modernity. It stood for a better, more just, and ultimately more moral modernity. The initial conception of the Islamic Republic, as far as the founders of it were concerned, was that they would have a, not simply a non-Western alternative modernity, but that it would be a superior moral modernity. And at the center of this conception and this program was a social engineering project. They sought to engineer a new generation of pious, educated, politically active citizens, but citizens who were also modern, you know, moral and authentic. So what this meant for women was that women were now more likely to be educated, but also veiled. They were encouraged to be participatory in society, but participatory in a sort of complementarity as opposed to an equality. There was a lot of stress on women's roles as wife and mothers. And so the dress codes and the enforced veiling for women were not simply about repression for its own sake, but an attempt to create these new kinds of modern moral citizens. The protesters challenging the veil, burning the veil, and the reason that the veil be has become a symbol of this protest movement is that they're not just challenging the morality police, they're not just challenging women's right to choose how they dress, but they're challenging the central vision of the Islamic Republic and their social engineering project. 
And in thinking about how this compares to earlier protest movements, um, it's certainly a different generation. And this is a generation characterized by having no experience whatsoever with the revolution itself. They are pragmatic. They're not ideologically minded. In other words, they don't share the utopian third worldist vision that animated so many of their parents. This generation is also very connected to the world. They may not have left Iran physically, but they are international, their horizons are different, their expectations are different, and they have the capacity through social media to compare their lives with the lives of others outside of Iran, comparing living conditions, opportunities, and other kinds of freedoms. Mm. So I think this particular set of youth is willing to risk more, to criticize more, and to reject more. There, there's just nothing above reproach at this point. And that's really, to me, what distinguishes these protests, for example, from the 2009 protest. In the 2009 protest, for example, the Islamic idiom of social justice was deployed against the Islamic Republic for the first time. Oh, you know, wow. the Islamic yeah. Republic, in other words, lost the monopoly of claiming that they were an Islamic Republic. And the people of Iran said, you are not Islamic. Social justice and Islamic truth lies with us and not with you. But there were certain red lines that hadn't been crossed in 2009. Um, the supreme leader was criticized, but nobody criticized the architect of the revolution, architect of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah. Khomeini. Now we saw just last week that protesters burned down his house. So I think we saw the erosion of some of the ideological foundations of the Islamic Republic, but now we really see the, the foundations crumbled. Wow. So since you are a historian, I want you to discuss a little bit about how the current uprising is different than what happened in 1979. Well, comparing what's happening today with 1979, I think is is useful, but it's also the case that there have there's been a lot of time passed since 1979. There have been other protests, there have been other movements. The world itself has changed. Mm. So I, while I think it's interesting to think about it, it's mm. not the only comparison that I think would be most useful. Okay. I think actually 2009 would be more useful and the Arab Spring would be more useful. So in thinking about how today's protests are very different than the 1979 protests, one of the big issues I think for me, and I haven't seen this mentioned I think enough in the media, is that Iranians did not have the experience of a democracy, however fragile, however partial in 1979. One of the reasons that people from a wide diversity of political positions were willing to march behind Ayatollah Khomeini, at least symbolically. The, the level of political repression was such that there were no political parties, there were no other leaders that really could reach large numbers of the population. And his, historically been the role for high-ranking religious leaders to stand with the people in revolt and to serve as figureheads around which people could rally. One of the ways in which Ayatollah Khomeini served as a figurehead in 1979 shouldn't lead us to assume that people who participated in the revolution necessarily wanted an Islamic government. In my estimation, probably assumed that, that Ayatollah Khomeini would serve as a symbolic sense of unity and solidarity, but that 
the clerical establishment would not participate in politics. What's so interesting about the protests today and about political protest in general today is that whereas Islam and the sort of Islamic idiom, which very much represented social justice and in a kind of third worldism way in 1979, now that people have had 44 years of the experience of an Islamic Republic, don't see the Islamic idiom in quite that way. I mean, they've experienced Islamic government or at least an Islamic government in ways that people in 1979 had experienced a monarchy. So in many ways in 1979, the failures of the monarchy led people to try a different system of government. And now that particular form of government has also failed. But people have much more experience in organization. People have much more experience in in participation. The level of literacy is extremely high. The level of political engagement is very high. We're dealing with a completely transformed Iranian population in these two instances. What role do you think non-Iranians should have in supporting the protests that we see today? You know, that's a really complicated question. At some level, ways in which questions are asked outside of Iran implicitly are about what can and should the international community do. I have several recommendations on this, and I know that I obviously I don't speak for everybody, I just speak for myself. My recommendations in terms of what can and should the community outside of Iran do is first and foremost, we should be guided by the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. And I say this because best intentions do not always lead to best outcomes. And so many actions have unintended consequences, you know, so it's not about, do you want to be helpful? Is there anything you can do? But it's also about, will what you do actually support protesters, actually help Iran's long struggle for political freedom, or will it impede and interfere with it? I think there's a particular danger in politicizing the U.S. role that mistrust of the the U.S. runs high in Iranian government circles and feeds into the hands of the regime being able to blame protests on interference, outside interference. That doesn't help the protesters. That would justify a much more bloody crackdown. And you certainly wouldn't want to identify protesters with outside forces, with imperial powers that have their own agendas. I mean, there's a long, long history of foreign interference in Iranian affairs. And so there's a there's an enormous sensitivity to that. And obviously the regime hoping to preserve the status quo uses that to their benefit. We also wouldn't want people to rally around the regime if there was foreign interference or intrusion. I mean, that also happens, that when you're invaded from the outside or whether there's overt interference, people rally around even deeply unpopular governments. So that that would be my second point. The regime is already pushing the narrative of outside interference, of Kurdish separatists, of ISIS terrorist attacks. And that that narrative is certainly one that is dangerous to the protest movement. So first, we should 
do no harm. The, my second recommendation is that we have to exercise both humility and respect. A humility about the U.S. capacity to orchestrate outcomes, the humility about the international capacity to orchestrate outcomes in Iran, respect for Iranians in Iran. This is first and foremost their struggle, uh, they're paying the price, and it is their future. So it is for them to decide, and I think we need to respect this and not decide to play God. But lastly, I would also say that symbolic action does matter, and the protesters want to see that they're supported and acknowledged by the international community. It's not a simple question of saying, well, let's do what the protesters want us to do because there's no coherent plan of action from the protesters. There's not one voice amongst the protesters. Some protesters are asking for greater involvement. Some are asking for less involvement. Some want the nuclear deal. Some don't want the nuclear deal. You know, it's very complicated trying to sort out what was useful and not damaging. But certainly I can imagine uh, international support for putting pressure on the regime through symbolic action, for example, should on December 14th, the UN vote to exclude Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women. That's a sim symbolic gesture. I don't think it will affect the regime specifically, but I think um, gestures of support and gestures of uh, support of the protesters and, and condemnation of the violence used against the Iranian protesters will put pressure on the regime. I just want to know um, um, what the government response has been to some of these protests. We know that there have been at least several hundred protesters killed. There's some been brutal violent responses and what you have to say about that, Monica? I think the international community, as well as obviously the Iranian communities, have seen force deployed against the protesters by security forces. And this is what's really brought the, these particular protests um, into the international spotlight. It bears noting that the security apparatus could be and might become much more violent. That the security forces are not using all force available to get the protesters off the streets. And so thinking about what this tells us, clearly the government wants the protest to stop. But the question is, should they use um, much more violence or would much more violence backfire and fuel the protests? Is leniency going to lead people to go home or was le would leniency also fuel the protests? While we have seen a lot of violence, I think the capacity for violence is much larger and we haven't seen increased violence in part because the government is not really sure whether that will help or hinder stopping the protests. We also have to factor in what people sometimes call the fear factor, that there is pressure put on families, security forces knocking on the door. And I think we saw at the World Cup, just bringing it back to yesterday's Iran-USA match, that there's a fine line that prominent Iranians are walking here. The members of the national team were invited to meet with President Raisi before they joined the World Cup in Qatar. They couldn't say no to that, right? But as a result, people in Iran looking to see whose side are they on? Are they a government team? Are they the national team? 
And I think people are divided a little bit on this. On the one hand, they refused to sing the national anthem before their first match. And people thought, oh, great, they're their national team. Pressure was undoubtedly exerted on them by the Iranian regime via family members at home, via anxiety about being arrested when they return. They did then sing the national anthem or at least mouthed it the next time. So it's very difficult to gauge individual responses and how people are navigating this, what leads people out protesting and what keeps people, despite their enthusiasm perhaps, or support for protesters at home. And that's why bringing it back to the generational issue, you can see that young children are outside in the streets. Perhaps their parents are more reluctant. There's more pressure that can be exerted on them. They can lose their job. They can be put in jail. What will happen to their other kids? So that's important. The other important point here about violence is that given the very young age of the protesters and how many young girls, in addition to women, are involved, we have to ask, you know, for how long will the security forces be willing to go up against children? and particularly girls and women. How many of the security forces are professionals and how many are recruits? I mean, recruits typically are less willing to exercise violence on, on their own population. Will the recruits have the stomach for ongoing violence against children and women? Uh, I think it's something that, we, that, we're, that we're asking as, as we watch the violence of these protests. Now, thinking about how what it means uh, for the government to respond to this. They're clearly not sure what to do, clearly wavering, and the protesters are taking advantage of this. And because so many people have been arrested, they're not all being held in detention, but people are also being released. And that contributes to, um, on the one hand, there's the fear factor of the security police coming to your door, but there's also the sense that a lot of people are going through the system and coming out and maybe not as fearless as they might have been before. So the question will then be, will violence be used to squash the protests or is there a possibility of a negotiated end to the protests? And I think the question of negotiation is itself interesting. If and when would this happen? And what would the content of these negotiations look like? When we look at the supreme leader of Iran, Khamenei, he's famously reluctant to negotiate. I mean, we've seen over and over again in protests in Iran, his complete unwillingness to negotiate, which he sees as a sign of weakness and vulnerability. That once you start talking to protesters and you agree to one thing, the demands only increase. And so from Khamenei's position, it's very much a slippery slope when you begin negotiating. And here I think we, we should bring in the, some of the lessons of the Arab Spring. I mean, when we look at all of the states, uh, all of the heads of states that, that fell and which head of state has remained, President Assad in Syria is the one who refused to negotiate and held on, and he's still there, and all the rest are gone. And the Iranian government was active in helping Assad hold on. So they were directly involved with supporting Assad's regime and in encouraging him not to negotiate. Now, that said, it's entirely possible that some elements within the Islamic Republican regime might be more inclined to negotiate or to find some sort of common ground, something that would get people off the streets, not just to end it, but because there's, there's always the 
question of whether the protests will gather momentum. You know, they want to nip this in the bud. Right. Everything you've been saying makes me think of this question. A lot of the protesters are organizing online, sharing their stories and videos. The government's cracking down. However, it's been now over two months worth of protests in Iran. So the question has to be asked, does this have the potential to be a revolution and who's leading it? I think, you know, that's the question that people have been asking from the very beginning. I should just say as a word of caution, whenever there is unrest in Iran, and that's been the case for 44 years, people say, ooh, is this going to be a revolution? Mm. I understand why people are asking the question. There, there also is a concern from, from me as a historian saying there's a bit of wishful thinking involved in how we evade what's going on in Iran. And what lies behind that has been an assumption that this regime is not a friend of the U.S. and is a regime that we would like to see gone. So when asking, is this a revolution, there's, there's a lot of baggage that that question itself carries along with it. But increasingly, I mean, I think it is a more valid question than with earlier protests. I guess I would answer this by saying, at some level, these protests are revolutionary in the sense that if what revolution means is the removal of people's consent to be governed, and in the articulation of the political, economic, and ideological bankruptcy of the Islamic Republic, then the protests are revolutionary. Mm. But as you point out, it's not yet a revolution itself. It's not yet about to overthrow the regime. Whether it does or not, will depend on whether more people will support the protests, whether it will become a much, much larger in terms of the people who are not yet out on the street, will they come out on the street? But I think more importantly, what we're watching is if and when a lot more people start coming out on the street, it means that in their estimation, the tide has turned in the favor of the protesters. So it's not just will they come out to support the protest, but their coming out will almost be a symptom of their anticipated success at some level. We also need to see economic participation. We need to see more unions, uh, merchants shutting down the economy for this to become a revolution. You know, and the, the, the issue here is that the economic problems, the long-standing systemic economic problems are inextricably tied to Iran's political system. That there's been mismanagement, lack of transparency, and high levels of corruption, not because particular individuals engaged in you know, negative actions, it's not a bad apple issue, but because the system itself enables and protects this kind of behavior. You can't fix the economic problems without a more substantial change in the political system. They're inextricably intertwined. Look, people under certain conditions are willing to go through long periods of economic belt tightening. People will accept to do this if they think it's necessary, for example, in times of war or foreign aggression. I mean, we look at Ukraine as a perfect example of this. But it depends on people perceiving their own government as resenting them, that they have the trust of the citizens and a sense of anyone, everyone in it together. In other words, that the pain is fairly distributed and equally shouldered. The situation in Iran is such that the government does not have the trust of the people, that it can exercise effective, transparent management. No sense that the economic burden will be shouldered equally or fairly. No sense of being in it together and no sense of when it will end. 
And I think here, this has been exacerbated by the failure of the nuclear deal. Uh, when Trump unilaterally pulled the U.S. out of this, people's hopes of um, economic relief were dashed. You know, so it's all also about expectations. People had thought they'd seen the light at the end of the tunnel, and now the darkness is back and there's no end of sight. I think that has exacerbated the, the protests, failure to trust government management, and no sense that there's an economic future in the Islamic Republic. Okay. Well, we're talking with Monica Ringer, a professor of Middle Eastern history at Amherst College. Sarah, you had a question for the professor. Uh, yes, I did. As, as we're watching these protests um, here in the U.S., we like my introduction to Middle Eastern politics was learning about the Arab Spring and saying, what's going on there? Um, and now as we're watching these protests in Iran through the lens of American media, I mean, what what have we learned in watching the Arab Spring and now in what we're seeing today? Well, it's a great question. And I think in many ways, we've, we've learned a lot from the Arab Spring. And I Iranian regime has learned a lot and Iranian public has learned a lot from the Arab Spring. I, I should say that one of the differences between Iranian 2009 protests and the subsequent Arab Spring is that the Iranian 2009 protests were the first Facebook protests. You know, they, they were the first protests that emerged in the world that really mobilized social media as a way of organizing protests and of animating protests. The, the other interesting distinction of the Iranian 2009 protests as opposed to the Arab Spring was also that gender played a role in the 2009 protests in Iran in ways that it didn't so much in the Arab Spring, in the sense that the 2009 protests in Iran, people really questioned and destabilized the Islamic Republic's monopoly over Islam and its gender project. And people questioned that in ways that protesters really understood ways in which social and economic reform were also tied to the gender construction of the Islamic Republic. Whereas in the Arab Spring, we saw lots of women participating, but the objectives were not so much about social reform, they were primarily about political reform. And that said, the Arab Spring has offered many lessons to the sort of scholar of protest movements. One of the sort of issues is about leadership and how much easier it is to galvanize people on the streets who are interested in very different visions of the future, but who are all rallying around something that they find unacceptable, whether that is allegations of election fraud in the case of the 2009 Iranian protests. I mean, that was ostensibly what people were protesting about. But what we see happening is very quickly violence against the protesters, we saw this particularly in the Egyptian case, but throughout Arab Spring protests, brings more people out on the streets who may not have been willing to protest about a particular policy or may not have been willing to protest for political change, saying, well, they cannot accept police brutality towards the population. And I think we see that also at play in the current protests. Towards the protesters has only animated the protests right, in some ways. On the question of leadership, there were people who rise to the occasion in the Arab Spring protests, and many of them in 
certainly Iranian 2009 protests and in contemporary protests. But as soon as someone is identified as a leader and starts exerting leadership, they're arrested and put in jail. So that creates sort of a problem in leadership. And it's not for nothing in the revolution of 1979 that Khomeini, who is a sort of symbolic, at least, leader of the revolution was out of the country at the time, because had he been in the country, he would have been jailed and then he wouldn't have been able to exercise this kind of leadership. So that leadership is an issue with these, with these protests in general. My last point on the issue of leadership is that have protests, have mass protests in this century led to fundamental systemic change? So one of the questions is, do we even need leaders? Or is it really protests as pressure on regimes that has an effect? And the other question, of course, would be if we had leaders, would, would their vision of what to do in the future be sufficiently supported by enough people moving forward that that could lead to change? I think the most tragic lesson of the Arab Spring, however, at least as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that it's, it's one thing to oust a leader and it's another thing to change the system. So looking at Egypt, for example, we say, oh, the protesters wanted Mubarak to leave and they got Mubarak to leave. But a short while later, we're back with uh, President Sisi, again from the military. And so saying substantively, what was gained by the Arab Spring? Was it even a revolution, even though it was revolutionary in some ways? Looking back to the question of, you know, is this a revolution? The removal of the supreme leader will not necessarily change the system in Iran. One could imagine because, you know, he's, he's ill and elderly, at some point he will die and there will be his successor. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that no matter who the successor is, they will not be able to exert the kind of centralizing force that Khamenei has been able to do. I know he's been in place for many, many years, and he is deeply centralized authority in allying himself with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, who until now have been, in a sense, the junior partner in this relationship. I can't see any other supreme leader coming in, into that position who's able to manage the position the way that Khamenei has been able to do. So I think what is more likely to happen is that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps would become the senior member in that particular relationship. And we, while we would not see an end to corruption, and while the political system would not open up into being more representative or more democratic, we could imagine in such a scenario that dress would no longer be as relevant to the republic moving forward. But we could easily be in a situation or find ourselves in a situation in which nobody cares so much how, what people wear but in return for that particular freedom and other kinds of cultural freedoms, we would not necessarily see accompanying political or economic freedoms. Yeah. So in asking, is this a revolution? Is a revolution even a good thing? Can a revolution even happen? Do revolutions lead to liberal representative governments? I think is a question we should be asking. I was going to say it'd be a bummer if, if all we did was get rid of hijabs and then nothing else. 
Professor, I, I wanted to know, yeah. you, you brought up the, the ouster versus regime change conversation. Based on your research and your knowledge, does ouster happen once the elites, specifically the security elites, begin to break away from the regime? And do you see any signs of that happening right now? Because the way you were describing, the current leadership have a very strong relationship with the Iranian Guard Corps. So it's unlikely that the security elites would go and get rid of the elites. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think your question is, a, is an important one, and it's one that I've been thinking about a little bit. Um, I need to complicate my response by saying we have different elements within the political elite. So the supreme leader as one person in the in the person of Khamenei has consolidated enormous amounts of power in his particular office by a close alliance with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. But there are also ministers and um, deeply sort of conservative members of parliament and other political actors in other parts of a very complex government structure that also are part of this elite governing group. And so they are not necessarily in a position to manage military or the guard corps in the way that the supreme leader can. And I agree with you that I think one of the things that we're watching to see is, are there cracks in the elites? And one of the things that could happen, some people within the governing structure might say, look, maybe we can call in someone who's more reformist. Maybe we can call in even former President Khatami, who's known as the reformer, um, and maybe he could negotiate an end to this to the protests. It's not clear to me that that could happen. It's not clear to me that the protesters would accept a quote-unquote reformer, given the fact that the reformers themselves failed to transform the Iranian political structure from within. But if there were, if there were a crisis caused either by the supreme leader's death or by an economic shutdown and much more mass protests, I can imagine a scenario in which the military elite Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps might decide to take over the situation. Mm, yeah. I've learned a lot here about Iranian history and, and contemporary uh, social change. I, I really appreciate you coming on here, Panorama. I am going to be paying attention. Uh, the protests are still going on, and it is a fascinating time to see what is happening in Iran. We have been talking with Monica Ringer, who is a professor of Middle Eastern history at Amherst College. We've been learning a lot about Iran. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 